This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how artists, educators, and cultural practitioners can change the world one community at a time. We believe that young people are our world's greatest asset and recognize that we, as the adults who are dedicated to their creative development, have work to do so they can thrive. Listeners are invited each week to learn and laugh while envisioning new creative futures through the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. Jeff here with my friend Rachel. Rachel, how are you? It has been a while. It's been a while, Jeff, and there's so much going on in the world and I'm so excited to get to our podcast today and just to be talking to you through so many different inspiring um, issues that James has brought up and really excited. Yeah, it's really great. So just to travel back in time, you in fact are coming to us from Australia and I know on Gadigal land that was never seated, but you, the last time that we spoke, you were running for office and I think we just need a little bit of an update on what has transpired uh, over the last couple of months. For sure, Jeff, let's do an update. And thank you so much. You have been listening, haven't you? <laughs> yes, we're on Gadigal country in the Eora Nation where sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And this is uh, the land in which I did indeed run, run for parliament. I ran for my seat is called Grainla. And Grainla is actually the Prime Minister's seat. So, Jeff, I ran against the Prime Minister because I like to aim high. Uh, <laughs> I ran on a platform of racial justice, social justice and climate justice and the intersection between those things. And it was my aim um, with my collective behind me to be able to speak truth to power at the highest levels um, so that the voices of so many different people and also the voice of our environment can be heard at a national level. That's great. And I love that, you know, not only were you as an individual whom I adore running for parliament, but also the the role and the perspective of an artist, of an educator, of a creative um, justice-oriented person um, was at the table in those conversations, elevating um, the issues. I will admit, I did sit here on the whatever 12-hour time difference that we have, um, watching the polls come in uh, <laughs> to see what was going on over there. I'm sorry that I couldn't go knock doors with you. Um, oh, I love a good, is- good campaign. Wow. Um, but it it is so inspiring to see that and really is actually kind of a theme that I'll foreshadow a little bit of a couple of conversations coming up on the podcast, namely the one that we're talking about here today. So uh, for our listeners, I had the pleasure of chatting with someone who I've known for about a decade now named James Wells, who sort of like you, Rachel, is an arts educator that has found his way into these other different uh niches of some systems that can bring the multitude of identities that he has as artist, as educator, to influence things like public funding of arts education, um, the role of a for-profit corporation in cultivating creativity in young people and supporting parents and educators in that journey, and also working as a peer to other types of 
um, professional development or peer-to-peer -peer learning among visual art educators. So I'm excited to share it with you and look forward to our conversation on the flip side. Welcome, James. I am so thrilled to have you join this episode of the Why Change podcast. I just think back to the time that we met many, many moons ago, um, back when you were doing some work as an as an art teacher uh, in your home state of Tennessee. And, you know, over the years, we've reconnected with a couple of different roles that you have, most notably one where you sit now with Crayola, the uh, crayon company, and your role um, with the Tennessee Art Education Association, your professional association in the state. So uh, thanks for being here. And absolutely. Tell us, you know, give us, let's go back in the Wayback Machine here. Give us your arts origin story. How did you get started in the arts as an art teacher and now as a, a change maker for arts education? Absolutely, Jeff. And, you know, thank you for having me and providing this platform to share my story. Um, <clears throat> wow, going way back. So my mother, who is a, uh, a musician and vocalist, uh, she helped to cultivate my interest in the arts. Uh, I've been drawing for as long as I can remember. And, you know, as a kid, I attended an elementary school that did not have art classes. So my interests never wavered in the arts. Uh, I was the kid that walked around, if you can envision this, uh, for folks listening, maybe this is part of your story, but as a kid, uh, I would draw everything that I could put my eyes on. And uh, we didn't have much money. So I would also create my own sketchbooks. So taking just simple wow. computer paper, folding it in half, you staple or put a rubber band in the middle, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, and this was my way of documenting the world around me. So uh, that interest grew in the arts where I was able to attend a creative and performing arts middle school and high school. I had to audition to get into uh, those schools. And that really set a foundation uh, that propelled me to where I am today. Uh, those experiences of being within the arts and understanding and seeing various careers, uh, pathways and opportunities. Uh, so I did that and I'm kind of fast tracking here because this story can get very long, but <laughs> <laughs> um, had some amazing teachers, educators and supporters through those creative and performing arts programs. And those schools are uh, Colonial Middle School and Overton High School. And I was reared, I would say, in uh, at Kansas Elementary. So I grew up for the listening audience. I grew up on the other side of the tracks right, in terms of my elementary uh, art experience and just where I grew up. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, by the way. So uh, I would say Kansas Elementary has really helped to shape my character, uh, where I'm from in South Memphis. Uh, I spent most of my my younger years and, um, you know, again, landed at Colonial Middle and Overton High School. And while I was in high school, I had an opportunity to participate in a Job Corps program for the arts called Echoes of Truth. And this was a program that was started within Memphis City Schools at the time uh, for art students who had a passion for the arts and was seeking or interested in various pathways. And this program was modeled uh, as a Renaissance arts sort of model or experience where you had a master artist and you had an apprentice and you would work under that master artist 
for a brief amount of time. Well, the cool thing about this program was um, you had an opportunity to advance. So I started out the first year of this program in 97 as an apprentice artist. And I eventually worked my way up to becoming a master artist where my teacher at the time at Overton High School was also one of the master artists in the program. So I worked my way up and she saw something in me that I didn't quite see in myself uh, while I was in high school. And I had a passion for working with others, guiding my fellow peers at the time. So uh, when it was time to make a selection for my major in college, I uh, intuitively selected, I would say, uh, art education because she was such a driving force in supporting me and my goals and my dreams and aspirations. And um, I was on a full scholarship and I knew that there are a lot of things that I had to do to make sure that I finished within uh, this specific time frame. And um, I was inspired to, to teach others because that allowed me to have an impact on others around me and a generation of students that will eventually be the leaders of tomorrow. So became an art teacher, absolutely loved it. I did that for middle school. And in the summers, I taught in that Job Corps program, Echoes of Truth. Uh, I taught high school students in the summer. So eventually uh, transitioned from there, packed up, moved to Carolina to pursue my graduate degree in arts administration. And that really uh, created a shift in my life where I saw the arts beyond just the classroom mm -hmm. and the impact that it would have in communities, right, across the nation and even the world. So uh, to kind of fast forward, I ended up in uh, the museum world for a number of years, uh, working in, as an education manager for a, a local museum there in Carolina. And that led me back to my home state, Tennessee, in Nashville, uh, to work for the Tennessee Arts Commission. And that's where you and I met, Jeff, mm -hmm. when I was at the Tennessee Arts Commission as the art education coordinator. And through that program, you know, we supported schools and districts and artists and nonprofit organizations through the administration of grants, right? And we worked closely with Americans for the Arts at the time and did a number of things to support the work across the state and then landed back. So moved back home to Memphis from Nashville to become the, the fine arts advisor for uh, my home district uh, was Memphis City Schools, now uh, Shelby County Schools or Memphis Shelby County Schools, and did that for a number of years with leading. Uh, we have about 200 visual art educators, uh, 460 plus arts educators total in the district. And I did that for a few years and wow, landed at Crayola. <laughs> and it's been great. It's been a fun ride. Uh, this is the short version of the story, by the way. A uh, lot of details and everything, but been doing Crayola now for about five years. And it's such fun to, to know that this is a, a company that's been around since 1903 and was founded in the roots of uh, education with uh, Alice Benny, an educator, uh, and her husband, Edwin uh, Benny. Uh, and they have these products that we know and love. 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but it extends beyond the products where we have this lasting impact in education through various resources and creative teaching and learning approaches. So I'm just excited to be able to uh, share these messages and this passion uh, and this experience that I've had over the course of my career with with others. Yeah, it, it is such a journey, James. I and I am so appreciative of you sharing all of that with the shout outs to the schools that cultivated your creativity and to your experiences, you know, as an art educator within museums, within other types of of agencies or organizations. But I I really want to focus on your time as an educator, you know, once an educator, always an educator. But the first thing that I took note of when we met was your drive to really connect to the bigger picture, taking what you knew of classrooms and learning environments and applying that to some of the systems change that's needed to support edu- education, um, arts education in particular, you know, be it through the state agency or other um, nonprofit organizations, advocacy groups and the like. So where did that come from? Where did that drive uh, start for you? Wow. Yeah, Jeff, great question here. So I have to harken back to my last year in the classroom, which was in Carolina. Uh, this was my last year uh, in my graduate program as well. So I mentioned that uh, in South Carolina, I, I attended Winthrop University and I taught in the Clover School District. And I had this desire to, I knew to eventually leave the classroom to explore this broader world of the arts and administration. This program was steeped in leadership skills and understanding your leadership voice and mindset. And I began to quickly learn as I was learning about these various skills and abilities of leaders that we know and love. I can apply this in the classroom. Like there's no no difference here. And I can also not only apply this in the classroom, but I can take these mindsets Uh, that I'm learning in the classroom and pull this out into the community. So I'm activating my leadership voice uh, that I'm using with students, but also sharing this with the broader community. So uh, I began to understand that leadership is not really uh, a position, right? Uh, Or a title. It's how we're able to use our voice uh, to activate change and create opportunities and pathways. So you know, having worked in the classroom and understanding the issues that many of our students are facing, uh, how can I provide opportunities within the broader community for those things to be recognized and seen? So, uh, you know, one of the things that that I was able to do as you know part of the program was, you know, for a lot of art teachers, they don't have access to supplies and materials or little access to the resources to provide uh appropriate uh, amounts of supplies and materials because, you know, we are in a consumable uh, field, right? Particularly in the art, art education. So how do we address that? You know, I uh, connected with our solid waste and reduction uh, facility there in our local county, and they provided supplies and materials for us to implement and create products and projects within the classroom, right? And those projects cascaded to public displays of student artwork. So uh, so recognizing that, 
you know, of course, there are things that should happen and occur within a system in terms of uh, proper funding, supplies and such. But how can I use this opportunity uh, as an art educator, knowing that, wow, I want to teach this lesson, but it's going to require a lot of money. How can I begin to activate my voice and and uh, pull in partners within the community to 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 support what I'm trying to do here? So uh, I began to, you know, be develop this leadership voice of, uh, you know, creating these pathways again with working with outside partners. So that's one, one thing, right. That, that uh, we're able to do, of course, you know, thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and these practices and such that we're talking about in education, mm -hmm. how can we uh, help students feel more seen and welcome within an art environment uh, where they have an opportunity to share their voice. So during my last year of teaching, also, I uh, started a practice or adopted a practice that's widely known within the art classroom, and it's called uh, teaching for artistic behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a choice-based classroom approach. So what happens when you give uh, students choices? They feel more empowered. They're more bought into their ideas uh, that they bring forward to the classroom. I become more of a uh, facilitator of learning rather than a dictator, right, of learning. These are these are skills that students are developing in the classroom. And uh, you know, as I'm developing this and now working more in the corporate world and nonprofit world, it, these same rules apply, right? Mm -hmm. No one as an adult or creative wants to be dictated to, like, these are things that you have to do. No, we want an opportunity to have choice and voice where our ideas are celebrated and that we are bought in to uh, the work that we will lead or implement in any learning environment or community. So, uh, so again, as I was doing these things in the classroom, uh, I began to see this transfer of, of knowledge and skill set within the the broader picture. That was a lot to say there. Yeah, I well, I love that, especially that. That transfer of skills. I mean, so often we talk about sort of constructing these leadership pathways because I think on principle, we all agree like arts educators should be in leadership positions as um, organizational leaders, as policymakers, as funders, you know, all of these things. But what I think folks sometimes fail to see is the transferability of a lot of the skills that we hone as arts educators, that sort of values driven approach um, of of cultivating creativity and problem solving and meaning making that we have with within the classroom that totally applies to our organizations and our public policies and our funding programs and you know and all of that and I think your career is a really great example of how that can play out in the classroom as a funder as a policy advocate I guess uh, and now sort of on this platform with Crayola. So I actually want to spend the next bit of time thinking about Crayola, which we all know as the company that makes crayons, and it has a tremendous platform to reach arts educators, uh, you know, museums, other types of creative, but also families and communities. I mean, crayons are everywhere in the world, right? So kind of wearing that hat as an arts manager now, you know, what do you do there? How do you use that platform? And, and really how, you know, how do those types of of 
messages that you're talking about around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and behavior, and uh, artistic thinking, um, how does that integrate to a company that makes crayons? Very uh, good question here. So um, I have to begin with the core mission of our organization, and that is to uh, partner with parents and educators to champion creatively alive children. So mm-hmm. uh, to truly embody that message, we have to uh, you know, understand the, the what and the how, right? And uh, the importance and value that that message brings and what it means, right? To truly champion creatively alive children. So we do that in a number, a number of ways. You know, you've mentioned, right? Most people know us as um, the, the crayon company, right? So we have a product site where we create crayon, paint, you know, color pencils, markers, right? You name it, we have it there, right? That's only... Uh, the beginning, right? When you think about these colorful tools, instruments, how do we now encourage and prepare a generation or generations, right, of of students and parents to use those tools to really have a voice? And this is where I come in, right? So I, I would say that I'm more on the the idea side of of the business or nonprofit side of the business, right? Where we pair our big ideas around, as you mentioned, diversity, equity, inclusion, social, emotional learning, uh, storytelling, uh, self-expression, right? We take a lot of these topics that are of interest and we know is important to child development and growth. Uh, we, We pair those and those cascade in a number of ways. I work closely with educators uh, where I develop and design uh, programs, uh, projects, unit plans, uh, videos now, uh, virtual offerings uh, to help cultivate their creative capacity, right? Uh, We make art materials, but we are in most every classroom across the country, right? In the world even. So understanding that we we have real estate in all of these classrooms, how can teachers use this, these tools again to to uh, to champion creatively alive children? So that's where I come in again, creating videos. I have a series called Creativity Tips, right, where I give uh, in two minutes or less, right, some creative <laughs> prompts to engage one's thinking. Right, one of them is around personal identity. Right, we have this true selfie where we look at both our external, what people can see, but then it's great that people can see who you are on the outside, but what about those traits, those abilities, the interests, right? That that's invisible. How can we pull that to the surface? So we push and prompt kids to draw upon that, right? Draw that in your personal identity narrative or portrait, right? Uh, so these are kind of non-traditional ways of portrait drawing. Mm. So uh, that's a way that, you know, or one of many ways, rather, we we encourage and inspire um, uh, creativity in the classroom beyond just the the markers, pencils, and paint that we see. We also have a program called Crayola Creativity Week, which is a free program to inspire creative hands-on learning across the curriculum and classrooms across across the globe. So 
Uh, in launching this movement, our goal, our intent is to nurture every child's creative mindset, as well as helping to build every teacher's creative capacity. So uh, in designing this program, this is a week long celebration of creativity. Uh, the official launch of this program will occur in January, 2023. The official dates are January 23rd through the 29th, 2023. And it will consist of five in-school experiences as well as two out-of-school experiences. And during this week, teachers and parents are able to access all sorts of innovative, creative resources that they can download as well as videos and uh, some of the, the the talent, if you will, that's featured in these videos consist of celebrities that you know and love, um, as well as interesting artists, um, authors, illustrators, uh, scientists that will be a part of it. So this week long celebration, uh, we're hoping to 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 really support creative teaching and learning practices, both in school and at home. So uh, for the listening audience, I invite you to join us uh, for this movement. Go to our website, crayola.com slash creativity week and sign up and be a part of this creativity movement. And we would love for you to share uh, your creative inspirations uh, from this week. You know, I love that and that language around championing creatively alive children right like that is such a a really kind of point of brilliance maybe this is the episode title emerging um but i think those words are so powerful right that championing has to do with being the best advocates for children and their inherent creativity creatively alive speaks to this both internal and external creativity that truly animates the the person right that the whole person the whole child and then you know the the focus on children is is so important and, and something that i think brings all of us listeners included together but one thing that you mentioned was a lot of these ideals that uh, transfer beyond the you know principles and elements of art, right? You know, like, yes, yeah, certainly there's color and shade and shape and texture. That's great. But I also think that what you're talking about is, you know, representation and belonging and storytelling, narrative building, claiming of histories, personal and social, which really all aligns to this movement within our field to center social justice going beyond just this conversation about equitable access or equitable funding like a ah, buzzword buzzword mm -hmm. actually really keeping social justice at the center of our work which just reminds me of the project we did last year with the tennessee art educators association um, it was a wonderful time collaborating with you and all of your colleagues on this and for our listeners you can read more about it we'll drop the link in the show notes about what we did together but largely it was a multi-part co-created workshop that crosswalked the Tennessee visual art education standards with the Southern Poverty Law Center's Education for Justice social education standards and 
with teachers have these beautiful moments of exploration and learning, thinking about how this would actually manifest in the classroom. So, uh, James, I just wonder, maybe you could share some reflections on on that and sort of the role of of social justice as you see it amongst the art education community and what's actually happening in practice in classrooms in communities today at this cross-sectional space yes uh that was such a moving experience for our art educators so to kind of rewind back at the time i was the diversity equity and inclusion chair for tennessee art education association and this was right on the heels of uh, George Floyd and uh, many other uh, social justice movements that was sweeping across our nation. And like many state organizations, uh, state art organizations, but I would say organizations in general, there was a pivot and a hyper focus on uh, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And I was new in this role for our state association. And one of the first things that that I was able to do is to begin is to get an inventory of who are our members and what are they interested in? Where are they? Right. Uh, and, you know, really trying to understand what those needs are for our teachers. And it became evident that um, the interest in bringing social justice, diverse equity and inclusive practices in the classroom were top of mind. So, that quickly led to a number of things, uh, you know, knowing Jeff, you for a number of years and your interest and work and research, uh, I happened to, you know, come across your organization and uh, notice that you were doing a lot of work in that field of mm -hmm. diversity, equity and inclusion. And we had a great conversation about how our organizations can work together in support of this work. So, you know, as you know, we created this uh, Social Justice Institute, which was Social Justice Art Education Institute, which was magical, right? This was over a number of, of months. And uh, you know, our educators, you know, along with you, Jeff and Solomon, mm -hmm. uh, we we met for uh, what once a month for, uh, I think, five consecutive months. And we had a capstone at the end. Uh, where, you know, again, we're building, teachers are applying these practices in their classroom after they've had uh, an experience. And in between, they had homework to do, mm -hmm. right? Understanding that this would cascade to a, a bigger picture. And the beauty that happened here is uh, we saw mindsets change, right? We saw aha moments where teachers were seeing that uh, this is certainly a topic that is of importance, but the art classroom was certainly the uh, the the area, the space where these conversations can naturally happen, right? Because we know that arts are directly connected to humanity, and humanity certainly brings up topics of social justice and, and various things. So uh, this was a moving experience because our teachers were able to present their findings, their projects at our larger spring conference, right? So uh, uh, they in turn were confident in, uh, through this training, confident that they could could bring these practices in. And one, one story sticks with me uh, for one of our teachers experience and she tied social justice uh, 
equity, diversity, inclusion to the book, Where the Wild Things Are, mm -hmm. which I thought that was such a novel, right? Because a no novel idea, because she's teaching elementary age students. And uh, sadly, in a lot of states across the South, we are seeing uh, you know legislation that is uh, speaking out against doing these sort of things. So how can we have an important conversation, a necessary conversation with students uh, using the resources that are available to us? And this particular book, Where the Wild Things Are, is the perfect book because if you think about that story, there were assumptions made about these creatures before we even met these creatures, right? We talked about their features, their gnashing teeth and various things without knowing or seeing or meeting them, right? So you take that picture, that book, and you cross-pollinate that with a cross-section that with uh, what we see in society, right? When we see people, what assumptions are we making about them? What stereotypes are we making about them, right? Uh why is it important to get to know people before we make these assumptions? How can we stand up for folks when they don't have a voice to even voice who they are, right? Or the, the value that they bring. And these were conversations and questions that were happening around this story. And, you know, this teacher was able to pull this to real world application for students, what's happening in, in the media today, mm -hmm. right? So it's things like that, that I think educators... Uh, have the creative insight and foresight to be able to take what's uh, a big topic, a necessary, important topic, and make it applicable in the classroom. And I have to say, by going through an institute like that, that we had, that created the, the springboard to have that. And we're seeing long-lasting effects of that today, where we have like book studies, right? We're a part of uh, recently, uh, uh, the anti-racist art teachers collaborative, you know, they have monthly book convenings and studies. So we're seeing more teachers be a part of that, showing interest in that, um, as well as professional development, right? We've now pulled in, in a very intentional way, uh, these sort of experiences, social justice, artivisms, equity, diversity, inclusive sessions. We're pulling that in our learning experiences whenever we have an opportunity to get in front of educators, right? Because we understand the importance and value of that. And I have to say that that institute really helped to shape where we're going as an association and what practices we do now to help us get there. Well, James, I am, that is so exciting to hear the long lasting impact. But I mean, I agree with your analysis. Those you know, yeah, there were practical skills that were gained and and certainly, you know, we at Creative Generation subscribe to the idea that we are not, you know, experts on all of this stuff, but we are sort of instigators of the conversation or catalyzers of the peer-to-peer um, -peer learning that can happen by sort of interjecting different topics and resources. And there was some real brilliant stuff that happened, but I totally agree. There were several moments that I can still imagine exactly as they happened today where you saw someone's kind of position in their mind totally just shift the frame you know went on a tilt and they saw things in a new way and that type of experience is is just transformational for everybody um so it's great to hear how that ripple has 
come out of, of that work. So thank you for sharing that, not only with me, but also here uh, for all of our listeners. Um, and I have to say, Jeff, if I could just interject uh, really quick, uh, these sort of opportunities, I would say, gave teachers courage to speak up uh, and to advocate for what they believe is right. And uh, this work really centers on that. Uh, you know, again, the opportunity to give voice, to be courageous, to have those necessary conversations. And those were big takeaways, I think. And we're seeing that happen now in a very intentional way across education, or I would say uh, National Art Education Association, right? They're very intentional. We're receiving, receiving guidance uh, where we have our leader uh, of equity, diversity, inclusion at the national level, Ray Yang, who is providing uh, tools and resources to help intentionally implement these practices in state organizations. So, uh, so having this partnership that's you know state, local, but also having partnerships where you see organizations like Creative Generation and others uh, doing these sort of things, I think that that's important and we have to maximize those opportunities so that teachers feel confident and prepared to be able to do this because the reality is, I would say even before, and you still see it now, uh, there was the lack of confidence in how do I bring this up with my students when I feel so uh, inept in my knowledge uh, to even discuss, or I'm afraid to discuss or talk about this here. But you know, having that learning opportunity created this this shift in confidence in ideas where they can reframe lessons that they are currently doing in the classroom and adding and and seamlessly weaving these topics in. So uh, so again, you know, I have to thank you for that uh, because that was something that I've noticed and continue to notice in our educators as a result of that. Well, James, you certainly are, um, if I do say so myself, leading by example and kind of walking the walk, not just talking the talk, which is the best way to sort of have the megaphone that you do and to use all of the experiences that you've had to drive that change. Um, so for all of our listeners, you all know that as we meet people all around the world, like James, we seek to sort of understand what keeps them going. Uh, so James, in just a few short answers, I would like to understand a little more about what it is that keeps you going as a change maker. So I've got five questions. Are you ready? Oh, yes. I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> All right. First, who inspires you? Wow, that's a big question. So... <laughs> I would have to say my mother, and this is why. She is such a strong, courageous, humble Black woman who defied the odds. Uh, she successfully raised six children as a single parent. And I mentioned we grew up on the other side of the track, so we didn't have a lot of money. My mother is an artist, right? Pianist. She was a church uh, pianist, musician, still is. And uh, she managed to raise us while also maintaining and cultivating her passion, her artistic gift of, of playing the piano. And uh, we grew up in an environment uh, 
where we were in the environment, not of the environment, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. In the world, not of the world uh, for folks. So uh, she helped to to uh, to develop that that spirit of defying the odds. And uh, she's just a, such a joy. And she continues to cultivate and challenge herself and her gift. And she learns and grows each and every day. And that's that's so inspiring to me. Um, and yeah, so I would have to say my mother. What keeps you motivated? Wow, what keeps me motivated? Uh, I would say that my my family, my wife and kids, uh, I have an opportunity and a privilege to you know be a husband and a father, and uh, knowing that that affords me uh, the opportunity to pour into my kids, uh, who will. You know, I hope you know be here much longer than I will, right? They can carry uh, uh, those values uh, that I helped to instill in them. Uh, they'll carry that with them forever and ever. So that is that's motivating to me. And also, I will have to say, you know, I, I I'm blessed with the gift to connect with people, uh, to have a creative mindset, and uh, any opportunity to influence someone's life through my creative mind and spirit. Uh, uh, I, I, I want to do that. Right. Hoarding breeds scare scarcity. And I want to share, share, share. Right. And that's the motivation for me is to share and not to hoard. I couldn't agree more. Where are you most grounded? Uh, I would say I'm most grounded in uh, my family and relationships with family and friends. Uh, I'm very intentional in uh how I cultivate these relationships. I'm a young widow uh, for the listening audience. I, I lost my my previous wife uh, uh, after four months of marriage. And I learned at a very young age, and she was my high school sweetheart. I learned at a very young age, the, uh, the value uh, that life brings and uh, being able to uh, intentionally cultivate those relationships with people. I can never take that for granted. Right. Uh, the, the love, the opportunity to to be kind, be nice, be generous. Uh, that's important to me. And that grounds me each and every day. Just the the value of life itself. So, yeah. How do you stay focused? Creating boundaries. <laughs> there is so much out here, as you all know, between technology, social media. Uh, most people that know me um, know that I advocate for not being great at multitasking and uh while you know that's certainly a gift for for a lot of folks i intentionally don't do it because if i am doing too much i'm not focused on the the thing that's probably the most important so <laughs> i create boundaries and i understand where the distractions are so i don't have uh what i've termed as purpose creep what's your purpose Uh, in life. Focus on that. Don't let anything creep in on that purpose. So create those boundaries. And last, why change? Wow. Uh, Why change? Well, first it's necessary and it's inevitable, right? I I consider it a divine order of the universe. And uh, when we open ourselves up to change, we easily adapt to its nature. Uh, Change creates momentum that leads to personal professional growth. Uh, perspective shifts, and uh, it's important to do it. It allows for us to grow. Well, 
thank you so much for being with us on this podcast episode. So many wonderful gems of knowledge and inspiration and good challenge uh, for our field to keep moving in a progressive direction. So thank you very much for being with us and we will catch you next time. Thank you, Jeff. And we're back. So Rachel, I hope you see why I was like, this has to be the conversation with Rachel Jacobs about what James has done. Cause there's just so many things that I think overlap in, in your two trajectories. So tell me a little bit about what you thought about James's story, the approaches that he brings and and maybe this idea of championing creatively alive children. It just makes me so hopeful listening to James, that whole podcast was so optimistic. And he, he said at the outset, it was one of the first thing he said is some of the folks here might, this journey might resonate um, with you. And I just thought, wow, this is, you know, not my exact same journey, but the journey through education and schools to being on the outside of it, but still being an advocate, um, the journey into industry, um, but being able to use your influence and everything you learn as an arts educator to be able to advocate for structural change. I thought was just so beautifully woven together. And James has this overarching philosophy that seems to infuse everything that he does. It is damn impressive is what it is. I I, I 100% agree. And I think that, you know, he gave that example of the the kind of selfie using um, using teaching for uh, artistic behavior as sort of the pedagogical approach and related that to his work in giving out funds at at a public agency and then within the um, association of art teachers and then also within his work at Carilla. And I just thought that was really kind of a neat analogy to take something that, you know, once a teacher, always a teacher, right? You know, that, that worked in the classroom, but to apply it in the, you know, adult to adult uh, kind of systems work that we do as we sort of try to figure out how to best support arts education. And that, you know, the idea of sort of thinking about how we change the frame, I think is a term that came up a lot of educators so that they realize like there is tremendous power in teaching the basics and principles of the arts, but also in and through the arts that can help young people respond to the world around them. And let's face it, the world around them sometimes isn't the best type of scenario. And and that's something that I kind of wondered how that idea shared in the context of the state of Tennessee in the U.S. translated to some of your work with with arts educators or soon-to-be arts educators in Australia. Yeah, definitely. I resonated so much with that. Um, I'm working in Western Sydney, which is, you know, I guess a long way from the glamour of the Australia that people imagine, you know, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and things like mm-hmm. that, you know, mostly marginalised and vulnerable populations and things like that. But, um, you know, all all working through the challenges and our communities of resilience and resistance and are really, really robustly expressing themselves through art. It seems to be a natural language in the spaces that I work in. Um, it seems to be a place where the arts is so cultivated, both at home and in people's personal lives. It is both an escape, but it's also, you know, the ladder out 
um, of marginalization, but it's also a way to keep and maintain your own culture. It is concurrently doing so many things. And I think that that's what James is really capturing is that potential, is the potential for so much change to take place through the arts. And um, and he's doing it so beautifully at Crayola now. You know, he looks like a, a national, international leader as um, an arts educate and as an arts educator. How amazing! I actually did a sneaky Google um, <laughs> James as well. I have watched his tips for story writing now. That's available on YouTube. I've watched a few of his, um, you know, little lessons for educators, but also for families and parents and and children and students and things like that and it just shows you how far your work can take you yeah. to people together yeah that's actually something I wanted to underscore I think James sort of said it a little you know off the cuff but I think it's actually huge that Crayola aims to support educators and parents and you sort of just said it there like these are tips also for parents and I think amplified during the COVID-19 pandemic when everyone was at home but also just generally in life, parents are the first arts educators. And and sorry if I sound a little bit on my soapbox. This is a lecture I give to my arts education courses at the university every year because I think we forget that just because someone doesn't have a teaching degree, they are in fact the at-home arts educators. And what child doesn't, you know, learn certain elements of their knowledge base, like say the alphabet through song or how to um, visually depict themselves and their families through drawing. Like these are things that occur in the home. And I think a lot of our structures in arts education are so geared towards formal education that we mustn't forget the at-home informal learning spaces that are inherently arts, culture and creative based. I can't agree with you more, Jeff. And um, I'm actually working on some projects at the moment where we're working with students in schools, but we're working with their families. It's intergenerational work. We're bringing them into the classroom and not performing to them. I think that parents do get invited into their child's education, more or less, depending on where you are, but they often get invited to watch their observers. Uh, they're on the outer, they're going to applaud their children or things like that. But we actually want the parents to do the learning alongside the children mm -hmm. because they are such an influence in their lives that if they can experience the magic of what their children are experiencing just a little bit, that will be really valuable. But I also just want to say something quickly about Crayola. I think that James spoke about his role at Crayola really well. And the first thing that I ever knew about Crayola, apart from, wow, really nice you know, pencils and crayons and mm -hmm. really nice tools, um, was a few years ago when they brought out, um, I don't have the right terminology around it, but different um, skin tones mm -hmm. in crayons. And it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary for me as a woman of colour growing up trying to draw your skin tone and just always mm -hmm. getting it wrong and not really wanting to use that darkest brown because there was so much stigma attached to it and things like that. So that's the first thing I knew where I thought, wow, um, an art company can have so much influence in the home. And to hear James talk about his role, I think was really joined those dots for me about yeah. how much we can be doing at home. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think for our 
listeners who uh, do not have a visual depiction of Rachel, Rachel also has pink hair. So it is uh, kind <laughs> of insane that you could color your hair and not your skin tone. Like that doesn't, that's wild. And I, I totally agree. And it speaks to sort of the in the U.S., we talk a lot about corporate social responsibility, like how do how do corporations think about their role in society beyond profit, right? You know, and and in a lot of ways, I think people often assume that these companies like Crayola must give money, which in some ways is probably the appropriate <laughs> method of of engagement with community, but. There's lots of other ways too, and I think you, what you just highlighted is a really fantastic example of that. Um, and you know, when we see um, musical instrument producers focusing on um, uh, modifications, particularly for people with disabilities, and you know, there's there are um, lots of examples of that. But I think this this is a shining one, and um, the work though that I think they do, and what I the thread I pull out from the conversation with James was really also just utilizing experiences as educators, you know, to inform all of the work. So it does mean, you know, those peer-to-peer -peer moments and the um, the relationships that are formed between the product and the people and, and things like that. And, you know, James has also done a really fantastic job, I think, and I'm a little biased because we did work on a project together, but of wearing those multiple hats and saying, you know, I am an educator, you know, first, and that integrates through all the things that I do. I have this specific job, but I draw these boundaries. And I also have a peer community, the Tennessee Art Education Association, that, you know, was doing the really hard work of trying to um, focus on social justice, focus on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, centering social and emotional learning. Um, and that journey that we were on together was something that was transformative. And we talked about that a lot, so I, we don't need to rehash it. But I also think those real practical examples of what these esoteric concepts can be when applied in the classroom is something that we need to share more of. And I know you do a lot of that in your work as well. Um, so I wonder, like, as we wrap up our time, like, what is what is your advice for music, theater, dance, visual art, media educators in practically implementing that type of of teaching and learning in their classroom yeah that's that's really the key isn't it it's the sharing it's the you know that James takes wherever he is he is always the teacher he's always the teacher educator um, so I guess my message is to be visible and to be proud and to draw people closer towards you because I think sometimes it is really easy to feel isolated as an arts educator. There might be only one of you in the school. Uh, there might be only one of you in that community centre or in the, that community. Um, you might be working alone. You might feel misunderstood. You might feel lack of resources. You might feel devalued. You might feel overworked so it is it can be a really isolating experience but I guess to invite other people into your space as much as you can and um, try not to be siloed and think that nobody understands what we do but hold the hand through it um, mm -hmm. and to make sure that people do understand you know the beauty of where the wild things are I mean, yeah. he referenced my favorite book um, <laughs> and, and and also referenced just how much how much difference 
um, where the wild things are does explore um, like those you know how much we stereotype those monsters I'll mm -hmm. just say a quick thing about where the wild things are um, Max the central character was clearly a very imaginative child mm -hmm. and we have no idea what mischief he was getting into when he got in trouble and got sent to his room but I imagine it was probably really creative Jeff I imagine yeah. it was probably that good trouble it's that good trouble it's probably good trouble. Might have resulted in some bad trouble. A very imaginative child. So let's let that loose and free. And I think that's how we can invite people into our world. Absolutely. And that sort of trajectory from imagination and creativity and play, right? Those are all interrelated. And um, and I think that there's a whole other podcast episode. But, you know, we we need to critique, you know, like, why, why was anyone in trouble for imagining? You know, that's something that, that can be discussed. But you know, Rachel, I think your advice is is really important. And I think if we are embracing that generosity, sharing our work with each other, with the world, we really can do these hard things, you know, and and tackle the the big systemic changes that are needed. And at the risk of sounding way too corny to use the phrase from from Crayola, we can champion creatively alive children. And I think that's a mission that we can all sign well that brings us to a to a close rachel thanks so much for joining me for this episode and thanks to james and everyone um for listening we will catch you next time i hope you enjoyed today's episode of why change the podcast for a creative generation if you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative change makers around the world please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes these show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by me, Jeff M. Poulin. Artwork by Bridget Woodbury. Our digital media producer is Daniel Stanley. This podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.